The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Wendy Liu to discuss Silicon Valley, the platform economy and the democratisation of technology. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow on Facebook and Twitter at Poll Theory Other. Wendy Liu is an economics editor at New Socialist, which is one of the best new resources for left politics and theory to have emerged in recent years in Britain. I strongly recommend checking out their website, which is newsocialist.org.uk, and there you'll be able to find articles by Wendy on some of the topics that we discussed today. I'm afraid the sound quality on today's recording isn't fantastic, but hopefully it's still listenable. Uh, it's possibly not one for playing through laptop speakers. So Wendy, you've you've worked in the tech sector in in startups, and I believe you also worked at Google for a short time. Could you say something about your experience of, of working in the sector and also your political trajectory? You know, were you somebody who was on the left at the time you were working in the sector, and so on, or is that something that's kind of developed uh, since, or, or or did you sort of become disillusioned and so on, and did that drive you to to a more sort of leftist position? Yeah, so I'm I'm someone who's very new to the left, I guess. Um, for me, I I just didn't really have any political awareness until quite recently. Uh, I started programming when I was pretty young. Um, I think I built my first website at the age of 12, and I think since then I just kind of started writing code on my own, doing a lot of open source programming, and just generally being part of the that community. And um, in that world, I kind of I, I kind of got to a point where I figured, oh, I guess I'll just be a software developer. Like this is what this is clearly the, this really lucrative field and I really like doing it. And you know, it seems like it's growing. So I studied computer science and math uh, in university. And then um, I, I did some side projects and got, got some jobs working on, uh, on software. And then in my third summer, summer of uni, I interned at Google in San Francisco. And that was one of those things where, um, you know, when I got the internship, everyone was saying, oh my God, this is amazing. This can be such a great opportunity. Google's this amazing company to work for. You must be so thrilled. And I was. And then I got there. And it was it was a really interesting disappointment because, I mean, it, no, no, no one was lying, right? They, they were right in that it was this great opportunity. They pay you really well. I mean, as an intern, you can make um, about 25000 uh, USD in one summer. And this is just like working, you know, pretty regular hours, just working on three months and they pay for housing mm. as well. And, you know, you get free food when you're working. So it's like they, they give you a stupendous amount of money, kind of um, not exactly as much as, say, like law or finance, but kind of similar um, in terms of magnitude. And the problem, though, was that it was just the work I was doing just felt so um, stultifying. I don't even know. It was really, really hard for me to reconcile all the things I've been told about Google and what I was actually experiencing on a day-to-day basis, where you know I had these technical challenges, and they were they were kind of fun to work on, but at the same time, just the idea of having to sit in front of this computer and solve these these problems every day 
right? Because that, you know the thing about internships is that a lot of these tech companies, they have really nice internship programs with the hope of getting the interns to come back and just work full time. So I was thinking, you know, if I do this internship, if I do well, I get a full time offer. This will just be my life. And there was a part of me that was just like, no, this is just, it's not sustainable because, um, you know, it's supposed to be creative. It's supposed to be challenging, and it is, but only on a very uh, low level, technical level. So if you're if you're you know trapped in the machine, really, you're just manipulating uh, code. It can be fun to solve, but it also means that you're completely disconnected from the larger impact of your work. And what I was personally working on was this very internal product that made it easier for people at Google to um, forecast basically how many servers they would need, how much energy they would need, that sort of thing. And it's just so completely removed from the larger societal impact. And I, you know, I wanted to do something that was beneficial to society, right? I think a lot of people in tech do. But the thing is, with Google, the only thing I could say was that, well, you know, Google as a company is good for the world, right? And I wasn't really sure why that was, but I felt like everyone at the company kept saying that. They kept saying that Google is making the world a better place. Google is organizing information. They're making um, some, you know, things more efficient. They're providing wonderful innovation and services to the world. And I just had to keep believing that. And that was the only thing I could cling on to. That was the only reason I could... Um, you know, convince myself to stay. So I yeah, did that for one summer in San Francisco. And I mean, just about San Francisco in general, that the city, ha I think, has only gone worse since I was there. But even when I was there, just the levels of inequality were just shocking um, in terms of homelessness, in terms of uh, uh, just housing prices going through the roof. And, you know, on really only new, new people who were moving there because of the tech scene. They were the only ones who could really afford places. So there was, there was that aspect as well, which made me realize that Maybe what I thought of as this, um, as this dream, as this you know very very American Silicon Valley style dream, where if I just uh, learned how to code and then became a good programmer, then I I would secure my own success, and also in the process the world would become a better place. I started to realize that maybe this is not actually the case. Maybe there are issues with the tech industry itself that make it. Um, you know, not, not this uh, benign, uh, wonderful thing that it, it would like to talk about itself as. So I started going through this phase of questioning, but at the same time, I wasn't really sure where to turn to. Uh, and I felt like a lot of my friends in the industry, we were all having very similar doubts, but none of us really knew what else we could do. And the only other alternative at the time that we were presented with was this idea of starting your own company. Because there's, there's such a huge myth around that. You know, anyone who's a software engineer or who has any sort of connection to the tech industry probably thinks they could start a company one day, or at least they've been told that they should. So for me, um, going back to my to university and finishing in my last year there, I kept thinking about, you know, what if I just start a company instead? And I ended up uh, finding some other people um, at, at uni, and we just we found other companies together. And for me, I mean, it was partly just because I just didn't want to go back to Google, which is kind of silly, but I just couldn't face this idea of sitting in front of this computer with these colleagues who I didn't really like working on something just in incredibly mundane and stultifying. And I wanted this challenge that was more than just, um, you know, like writing software for some huge corporate uh, behemoth. So I just plunged into this um, startup and I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. It was amazing that we even managed to raise money, but at the same time, that is kind of how the dynamics of the industry work. Most people don't really know what they're doing. They just manage to convince investors that they do. So we started a company that was initially intended to be a data science startup. We were um, we used some uh, machine learning, I guess, technology to try to infer uh, what 
people were saying about themselves on you know Twitter and Instagram and you know, figure out what it meant for them. And I mean, you can kind of guess already that the only real purpose we could find for that sort of data was advertising, right? So like mm. selling this data to marketing companies, uh, advertising technology companies, political campaigns, um, retailers, right? Like anyone who could find a use for this data, uh, like we, we would just pitch them all. And I think our, so our biggest customer ended up being um, Urban Outfitters. They, they connected our data to their email marketing database so that they could send emails to people based on you know, what, what we knew about them. So if we knew this person liked yoga or this person um, likes One Direction, right, then Urban Outfitters could theoretically use that to tailor their marketing more efficiently. And I mean, that's the thing about that is that um, a couple of years in, that was the most significant thing we'd achieved, right? Like there was no use case that wasn't just this really banal um, advertising use case. And I think after a certain point, I realized that even though it was a, a lot of fun to build the startup, and you know we learned a lot, there are a lot of really, really amazing challenges. I, I realized that what we were doing was just not worth our time, and especially it wasn't—it wasn't really worth my time. Like I felt like I, um, at one point, we were pulling you know 80-hour weeks and just barely sleeping, not really doing anything besides working on the startup, constantly fighting fire after fire. And I was just thinking like, wh why am I doing this? I'm doing this so that someone at Urban Outfitters can get a slightly higher email open rate. Like, what, what is the actual purpose? I'm not contributing anything to the world. So, yeah, I started to um, get really disillusioned with the whole world. And I mean, there's so many things about the tech startup world that just make it absolutely incredible. And I think a lot of people who aren't in that world just don't realize how, how just disgusting it is, I guess, in the sense of how much money is being spent. And, um, how easy it is to come by money if you're in that world, you have the right connections and you look like a founder or an engineer. And I think that's just one of the you know, social pathologies of our time, just like how um, this world of exuberance and uh, incredibly lucrative sector ex coexisting at the same time as uh, precarity everywhere else in the economy. So I think just being in that world and just being completely fed up with it um, I started to, you know, seek out alternative uh, viewpoints, and I think I, I would just follow people on Twitter who are very critical of the industry, and as a result, I, I started uh, reading some left-wing publications and books, so I found Jacobin, I think Jacobin was probably one of the biggest contributors to me turning towards the left, and I just started reading um, more and more uh, radical books, so I would just go to the library and then, you know, read books about Marx, and then eventually I, I got to the realization that there is actually this, um, huge fields uh, of literature and just people who are talking about things and approaching the world in the same way that I did. And that was, I guess, what drove me to the left. And then when I moved here um, to London, I, uh, I started going to uh, events, uh, Momentum, events. Uh, so I went to The World Transformed, uh, just various talks about tech and the left. And I kind of just fell into the scene and I realized that there are actually a lot of people who do care about um, who do, do think about things the same way I do. So it was really nice to just finally find a community because in tech, I think sometimes it can be quite isolating when you're questioning how things work because, I mean, that people do question it, but at the same time, you, it's really hard to openly question it because it's almost this unspoken thing that everyone has to be in agreement about the fact that, yeah, you know, salaries in tech right now are kind of inflated, but that's just the way it is and it's okay. So, yes, I've, I've been uh, very, very grateful to have kind of found this community of people on the left who 
um, see <laughs> see the the tech industry the same way I do. Mm. Uh, just going back to Google for a moment, I mean, I suppose uh, that the, these sort of tech giants have to tread quite a, f- uh, a fine line of 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 making the the uh, the jobs sort of sufficiently creative that people will want to stay in them and will be sufficiently enthused uh, to be part of the whole the whole business and so on. But nonetheless, it needs to be still contributing value to the company and, and so on. Do you think they've sort of over time, the degree of creativity within that, that industry has, has kind of declined somewhat and that, that your experience actually might be not untypical these days? I mean, I, I'm thinking about the, um, you know, during the Sanders campaign, I, you know, I remember seeing articles suggesting that there was a, a significant number of sort of disillusioned tech people on, on the West Coast in the US who, was, who had been drawn to the campaign. And so, so yeah, do you, do you think this is kind of a, a uh, your experience is maybe not um, untypical yeah I actually I exactly like I don't think it's that rare I think there are quite a few people who are you know disillusioned with how it is it's just that it's very hard to the dynamics of the industry and just the amount of money involved for any of them to quit I think the same way that I did so I think I, I was lucky that I found this startup because if I hadn't, if I had gone to work for Google, I don't know if there's a way I could have quit because um, just like the, the, way, the way compensation works, right, is that they'll, they'll pay you a salary, they'll pay you a bonus, and then on top of that, they'll give you stock. So Google, it's um, RSU, so restricted stock units, which means that um, you know, when you first start working for them, they'll give you, say, uh, 150000 worth of stock vesting over four years, and that it vests... Uh, and then each quarter of it vests annually so that if you leave after 11 months, you don't get any of the stock. If you leave after a year, you get a quarter of that stock. And then the thing is every year, or sometimes more often, they'll give you um, stock refreshes, right? So then you, you stay a year, you get a quarter of your stock, then they give you, you know, another 200,000, 300,000 worth of stock for the next four years. So that's how they kind of keep you staying in the company, right? So golden handcuffs. So even mm. if you hate the work, even if you find it absolutely awful, you don't want to leave the company. You're just going to switch to a different team, maybe try to try to negotiate a slightly you know different role. But at the same time, it's just so hard for anyone to leave. Um, and I think this is something that just happens as any company grows, right? Because I think that in the early days, Google was touted as this really wonderful creative company where you could do whatever you want. Uh, and people had this um, thing called a 20% time, where 20% of the time you could kind of work on whatever you wanted. Mm. And um, I think some really interesting projects were launched that way. I think Gmail was one of them. But they didn't, that was something they had to kind of phase out, right? As the company grew and they realized they couldn't just keep starting new projects all over the place. There's a lot of work to be done in maintenance and the really um, less less fun, more boring kind of stuff that really just has to be done. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, this is definitely not specific to Google. I think it's just any tech company that gets to a certain size, they become more corporate they solidify a little more. And I mean, that's not necessarily a problem in itself if the company is doing something inherently valuable and if there's a way to justify that company's place in the world. The problem is um, with a company like Google, at this point, it feels like the good, any potential good that they do is uh, negated by a lot of the harm that they do. And a lot of this harm isn't even anything that they themselves are trying to do. It's more just um, a function of them being this huge corporation that is, you know, avoiding taxes for one, and just, uh, you know, siphoning off wealth from from areas that really need it. And it just, it's 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 something that is not necessarily specific to tech either. It's just that because in the in the tech industry, it is so easy to create products that scale and um, 
really accelerate adoption to the point where you're accumulating all this wealth in a very short period of time. And so I would say the problem is you know, more just to do with the fact that it's a corporation uh, with, with a certain remit, but um, the, the technical aspect just makes, uh, makes the time scale you know, vastly different from anything we've really seen before. I was actually having a conversation about um, Google uh, internship salaries just like just yesterday. And the fact is, I mean, they pay you a lot, but this whole idea of value is completely detached. It's, it's, in a way, it's like spread out over the company, right? So they're not really thinking of, of for each individual person, you know, is this person contributing their salary worth of value? There are people who are just there to uh, do like internal blogs, right? Like there are, so, there, there are interns who are there just making blogs that no one reads. And it's like they're almost given sinecures during the internship because the whole point is to make sure that Google has this funnel of technical people that it can recruit, that it can um, keep coming into the company to have this, you know, constant injection of fresh blood. So it doesn't really matter if people are contributing value in a way, which is the, the really interesting part. They're making so much money that they don't care, right? I feel like it, it's like this with a lot of tech companies. I mean, some of the more conservative ones, they do want to make sure, you know, that this person's adding value. But for software engineers, for one, it's really hard to assess whether they are sometimes. Not everyone is working um, in a line of business that that you can actually measure how much ROI they're bringing in. So a lot of the time it's just, this person's a good engineer. Um, you know, they, they made this much at their last job. We'll just pay them this much. So it, it's, it's really, really weird dynamics um, in terms of the labor market and tech. I suppose, and uh, you know, this thing of, of giving um, employees stock options, I mean, I suppose that has an effect in terms of just altering the way that uh, these people conceive of themselves as well, you know, in the sense that they, they won't necessarily think of themselves just as salaried employees, but, um, but yeah, as, as capital owners in, in some sense. Yeah, exactly. And I, I guess that is part of the incentive, right? And I think that it's even worse in um, smaller startups because... Uh, the startups that haven't gone public yet. So instead of giving uh, stock units, they give stock options most of the time. And let's say you're employee number one at, um, you know, startup like Deliveroo, right? They're going to give you probably a very low salary, but a really large amount of stock. And the founders will promise you that if the company goes big, you'll be you'll be a millionaire, you'll be a multi-millionaire, right? So because of that, you think of yourself as someone who owns um, part of the company, so you're invested in the company, you want the company to succeed. It's not just the founder's company, you're not just an employee. This is your project too, right? Because your fortunes rise and fall with it. If the, company's goes, if the company goes bust, then you just have your small salary, then you've lost your, your potential to be, to be rich and famous. So you, you have to, like, you feel this need to give your life to the company because it's yours. Even if you know that the founders are making so much more than you, if, you know, they have 10 times the amount of stock you do, and of course the investors who don't have to do any work for the company, they have more stock than you too, but still, just a little bit of stock is enough to make um, you feel like you're really, really part of the company and that it's yours in a way, mm. right? And we, we, we've seen, I mean, in, the, in Silicon Valley especially, there's been a lot of cases uh, where people have been early employees at, at these tech startups and then they something happened, there was some sort of fallout with the founders or they quit or there's some sort of harassment and they didn't get their options in the end, right? So like the company goes big or raises a huge round of funding and then one of these early employees is shoved out. I mean, the, the most obvious case, I think the one that everyone knows is Facebook, right? And then there was that huge um, lawsuit 
as a settlement. But just, I think that the most fascinating thing f for me about all this is just how arbitrary these valuations are, right? Like the difference between being employee number one versus employee number 10 at a startup can be millions and millions of dollars. You can have joined a week apart, but it's just a dr dramatic like difference. And um, I think it just, just goes to show just how arbitrary like the, the numbers are um, and how really just, just messed up this is that, that there is all this money being funneled into startups right now. A lot of it is just, just going to people who happen to be in the right place at the right time, who just, you know, worked a little longer than, um, other, than other people. What's the situation of, of the labor movement in, in this regard? Because I suppose what you're describing, you, you know, that kind of, um, f you know, facilitating workers to think of themselves as part of the company rather than employees, presumably that really militates against uh, labor organizing as well. It does. So there's a really great article in N Plus One magazine by Alex Press, um, just a, about um, labor organizing and tech. And this is something that has come to the forefront only recently, right? Like they're there have been a few um, more high-profile cases of people trying to organize within tech. So there's a company called uh, Lanatix in San Francisco, I believe, and some of their software engineers tried to unionize. And I think this is the first case of um, just software engineers by themselves trying to unionize in recent years. So they were all fired, and the company said that they'd be moving those jobs offshore, right? Um, hiring, I think, workers from Eastern Europe to to take over their jobs. And that, that was a really interesting case because, um, you know, Trump has said that I'm going to stop companies from moving their jobs offshore. But at the same time, he's, of course, not sympathetic to the labor movement. Like, there's no reason he would be. So this is going to be an interesting test of the um, National Labor Review Board in the U.S. So who, who knows what's going to happen with that. But in general, there has been, it seems, very little class consciousness in the industry. And recently, there has been more, I would say. Um, that's pretty heartening for me to see. So the Tech Workers Coalition is the, the, the organization I'm most familiar with, so I'm actually running a panel, a couple of panels for them at Left Forum in New York on Sunday, just talking about the state of um, organizing in the industry. And it's just, it's, it's really dire, right? Like, the, in the U.S. Um, as a whole, the, the, the organized labor movement has never been as strong as in the U.K., and especially in the tech industry, it, it hasn't, hasn't been great. But um, I think recently more and more people are starting to realize that um, as tech workers, not only do they sometimes face um, adverse conditions in the, in the sense that they might be asked to work really long hours, they might be asked to work on things they don't agree with ethically, but they also have a lot of leverage in the sense that they can um, advocate for other people in the industry who have even worse conditions, right? So if you look at anyone working at a big tech campus, there are going to be so many, you know, thousands of support workers, cleaners, security guards, cafeteria workers who most of the time are paid really really awful wages and don't have any sort of um, job security so we've seen a few cases of people in silicon valley where software engineers uh, you know tried to tried to help uh, the support staff unionize and just get better conditions so i think that is that's really really inspiring i think that is something that software engineers should be doing more Using, using whatever leverage they have. At the same time, it's not necessarily certain the case with Lanatix showed that even software engineers can, can be fired, but I guess it comes down to you know, the, the dynamics of the, the specific situation. This, does this software engineer have enough leverage to be able to say, I'm, I'm going to walk away and I'm going to, or I'm going to you know, completely damage your business if you don't give me these conditions for either myself or my other my colleagues? 
In a, in a speech you gave at the State of the Economy Conference in May, um, you began by sort of outlining the conventional narrative around uh, the big tech platforms like uh, Facebook and Google, Airbnb and Uber and so on. And, you know, that narrative is sort of um, that these companies are the brainchilds of these genius entrepreneurs um, who are contributing to the to, you know, huge innovation as part of the second machine age and so on. Um, what do you think is wrong with that picture? Uh, so I think that picture is one that's born out of this uh, very neoliberal or just, you know, capitalist drive um, towards glorifying entrepreneurship. Right. And it's, it's one that is uh, deliberately uh, obscuring the role of labor. So there's this book. Um, so actually, New Social has published um, a review of a book by Liam Byrne, who's a, the new uh, this uh, MP for Birmingham for Labor, who's part of this uh, you know very new labor tradition. And the book was called um, Dragons. I think uh, ten entrepreneurs. Uh, great entrepreneurs in Britain's history or something like that. And it, it, it focused, it brought to the forefront this um, great man theory of history, which is that, you know, it's it's the entrepreneurs who who do amazing things. It's it's these um, few glorified individuals like Elon Musk, right, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg. They're the ones who have created all these jobs, you know, created all this innovation, and they're the ones we should be celebrating. And I think that's, I mean, th there's so many things wrong with that, right? And it's like a, um, just knowing anything about the way these people made their money it's so clear that their fortunes their successes were founded on exploitation they were founded on um countless other people who have actually done the work but whose names will never be recorded in history so i think in, you know if you look at the case of uber for example right um it's it's always or uber amazon um any any of these companies that have just have accelerated so quickly. It's always the founder who gets the glory. The founder, the founders, the investors, maybe um, a few people at the top. They're the ones who get all the money. They're the ones who have all the power. But the only way their companies could exist is if they had all these workers who are actually creating the value, who are actually you know um, put putting in the hours. And it's just it's um it's this incredible pathology of startups that it just it it's uh it's really just magnifying this trend that we have within. Um, the business world as a whole, where it's always those on top who are the ones who are glorified. And, you know, the problem is it's very hard to challenge, right? Because the 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 workers, I mean, the only way you challenge this is through an, a strong organized labor movement. Um, so it was, that was the question in the first place. So what is wrong with this uh, this narrative? Yeah, I mean, what's wrong with this narrative is that it's just entrenching this this status quo of inequality, right? Where... where um, the, those at the top, because they're the ones who have created all the success, they're the ones who have created all this job, all these jobs. They should be the ones who make the decisions, and they should be the ones who should be materially rewarded at the expense of those at the bottom um, of of the corporate hierarchy, right? So Uber drivers, it it oh, it's fine if they're they're underpaid, if they have terrible conditions, because they're you know they're not really the ones who created any value. They're just uh, they're just workers. It's fine. We can ignore them. And you know this. This is a narrative that I think people either, um, a lot of the mainstream press certainly it, either uh, consciously or not, propagates. And I think it's incredibly harmful. And but at the same time, it's not something new to tech either. I would say that this is just something we see in the uh, the business world at large. And tech has just found a way to seize onto it and um, magnify it for its own purposes. 
I suppose part of, of that narrative is to kind of um, is almost to say not quite that um, uh, you know other workers aren't contributing to the value, but but that this sort of the most important thing, the kind of you know the 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 moments of innovation or you know moments of genius or whatever, that those are coming from the key individuals at the top. That's Zuckerberg having the idea of Facebook and all this sort of thing. And and I wonder if you think even even that claim is 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 eliding the fact that a huge amount of just just the sort of technical innovation is coming from people that we that we don't know and that we we don't hear about. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a couple of interesting issues there. So I think one is that um, the the moment of innovation at the beginning, I think a lot of that is just is overrated, right? Because, and it also comes down to what we think of as deserving, as um, deserving of, you know, material rewards in any way, and also just uh, what we think of as innovation, right? So this, this moment at the beginning when Mark Zuckerberg comes up with this idea, well, the idea itself for for um, a lot of the way that people look at this, the idea is just that moment of innovation. That is what we should be focusing on. That is what should entitle him to, you know, this huge share of the profits and the control. But I mean, there's there's really that's really such an arbitrary way of looking at things, and there's no reason it has to be like that, right? And, and there are all these moments of you know smaller uh, what we think of as smaller moments of innovation just in the course of growing the company, which aren't really seen as worthy of discussion or or any sort of um, recognition so i mean i think there's just there's so many problems with the way that the tech industry is discussed and thought of from the inside and from without and there's just so many blind spots it feels like right this whole idea of um meritocracy i think is one that just has has a huge part to play in the distribution of wealth within the industry and it's this you know this idea that those who are at the top people like mark zuckerberg or whatever they just have more merit. They're more intelligent. They're more capable. They hustled, and you know, of course, all any any idea of what merit is, what constitutes merit, is inevitably bound up in existing power structures, right? So, there's a case of um, a prominent investor in Silicon Valley, who said that he could be fooled by anyone who looks like Mark Zuckerberg, and he meant it kind of as a joke, just like the fact that investors do pattern match, right? So then, if they're used to people who who are these are uh, college uh, Harvard dropouts who are white men who just have a certain way of, of talking and interacting with people, if they're used to that person uh, as, as a founder, then they're just going to invest in more people like them. So you know, we've seen a lot of cases where women and minorities are, are not able to get the sort of support and funding that white men are able to. And that's just like one of the symptoms of the problem, right? So... Um, yeah, I think it's, I mean, ultimately, it's just a, a very liberal narrative about uh, what, who, who deserves wealth, who, des- who should be glorified, who's created innovation. Hopefully that answers your question, sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's sort of amazing to think that, uh, that these investors would be actively seeking out people with uh, Mark Zuckerberg's personality. Um, <laughs> regarding Facebook, I mean, at the moment, it's under more pressure over its business practices than it's been at any other point um, in its history. And, you know, there's even talk of, of its eventual breakup as a monopoly service provider. Um, how seriously do you take that talk? And, and do you think you know, any moves to kind of break up the tech giants would actually be particularly beneficial or, or not or not really? So I'm personally not in favor of this idea of breaking up the tech giants. And um, so I think so Nick Cernick has written a little bit about about that and why it wouldn't really work. So I think that the main argument there has to do with the fact that these platforms have become infrastructure in a lot of ways, right? And because of um, the, the properties of these digital infrastructure platforms, 
they have things like network effects um, and just uh, economies of scale that make it, I would say, implausible that breaking them up would offer any advantages in, in a digital sense, like in a technical sense. Uh, from an economic standpoint, potentially, right? Like if, if the whole if the whole fear is that you know just having these monopolies is bad for business, then yes, may, maybe it could make sense to break them up. But I also don't think, and you know, that that buys into this very. Um, uh, free market glorifying view of the economy where it's like the only problem with the market is that there isn't enough competition well that I mean I think anyone on the left would would agree that that's not the only problem with the market so I'm still struggling how to you know to figure out what exactly can be done with these companies but I think the main thing is um, with companies like Facebook and Google in particular because they make so much of the revenue from advertising so around 90% of all of their revenue comes from advertising these companies have started to become these um, really important gateways in the digital advertising world as a whole, and that has ramifications for you know entire global value chains in terms of products that are produced, commodities, and publishing, especially. So in that case, we, we can't just think about you know how to deal with these companies on a one one by one uh, basis. You know how do you just take care of Facebook? How do you just take care of Google? You have to think what role do these companies actually play in the global economy? How do we make sure that the products that they offer can be separated from their actual business model, which is just advertising? And a lot of the products that these companies offer, I mean, ideally, these would be products offered for free without any um, advertising on, on in the background. But at the same time, then you have to figure out how do you just replace that? Because advertising has come to this point where it is so integral to the way um, goods are produced, right? And you can't just you know get rid of Google. You can't just break it up or just nationalize it without thinking about how that would be accounted for. So I think it's a it's a it's a really really complicated topic. Um, there are pl there are uh, movements around making data co either collectively owned or just not collecting data. You know, and improving privacy along the lo the lines of GDPR. But at the same time, that won't necessarily um, solve the problem because there are always going to be these tendencies to try to collect data like Facebook and Google do in order to use it for advertising. So I think, yeah, there has to be, you know, this broader movement around uh, reassessing what these companies actually do, where they get their money from, how, like, we have to imagine a world where you don't have these huge advertising uh, tech companies, right? Because the thing is, I think, you know, even if you figure out a way to deal with Google and Facebook, which I would, I think would be almost impossible just given how much money they have, right? How many resources they have, the possibility of regulatory capture, um, it's, it's going to be incredibly difficult, but even then, there's no guarantee that you won't just have another company springing up to do the same sort of thing within a few years' time, uh, just because of the larger economic structure, right? It's kind of like the, you know, the soil that the, these companies grew out of will remain the same unless we address that. I suppose, you know, in an earlier period, uh, sort of, you know, so-called natural monopolies, the solution would be to nationalize them, but, but um, mm -hmm. you know, these are, these are transnational corporations which um, yeah it's, it's very hard to hard to see how uh, something like that would, would would work I mean are there are there models of, of ownership that you think the left should be advocating uh, aside from nationalization yeah I think that that's something that we're at the you know at the beginnings of the conversation about right because like you're saying yeah these are these are not the same as say the railways for one they're not fixed to one place geographically. Um, with, with a railway, you you just seize the physical assets, right? But with with these digital companies, um, the really old, the only thing that you can really seize or maybe have control over, as a, say a national government, is to just um, 
control the the access to it, right? So like the, the domain names, the the DNS, um, you know, access to the internet, which is kind of what China has been doing. I don't know if I think that's a, I, I don't really think that's a good model. I think um, there are other models, but at the same time, it's just, you know, it's so hard to think about how this could work. So many of these technologies are so new. The left has never really had to deal with um, digital technology on this scale before, right? Like, you, you can only imagine what someone like Marx would have written about if, if something like Google had existed at its time. It's just, it's, it's really, really difficult to figure out how to deal with this problem. So I don't really know what we should be doing. I, I do think there has to be some sort of um, greater form of control in, in terms of um, actually controlling what these products do and what they're used for. And um, I think the Labour Party, what they're doing with the whole alternative models of ownership, it's a promising start. But there's nothing there that's really specific to tech companies, right? There's nothing there that really addresses how these digital platforms work. Um, so I think that you know there has to be some sort of organized movement on a bunch of different fronts, including from within the industry. You need tech workers who who are in positions positions of leverage to assert that they want to be the ones having control, kind of like the the Lucas plan and the way that worked with the Lucas Aerospace. Um, but at this, you know, it's right now it just it really feels like there's so much to be done. There's so much progress to be made with tech um, in terms of. Uh, class consciousness within the industry, what, what workers should actually be fighting for, and how um, both the public and governments are able to deal with it. Because right now it feels like there's a huge blind spot, especially in the government. Um, if you look at the, so the Labour Party's current um, digital, shadow digital minister, Liam Byrne, he has a very new Labour-esque, uh, like, liberal way of dealing with the problem. Right? He, he isn't about, you know, creating this new form of, um, democratic ownership of tech companies for the 21st century, it's very much rooted in this idea that, you know, because the tech sector is generating so much money, because there's so much, the, the salaries in the tech sector are so high, we should just get more people in the tech sector, right? We should just teach more kids to code, we should invest in retraining, and then let's move all these people into the tech sector, and that will magically fix things. And when it comes to the big tech companies, he's saying, you know, we should maybe ask them to, ask them to pay taxes. I think that was the exact phrasing he, he used. We should ask them to pay a little more taxes. We should um, regulate them. We should make sure they behave ethically. You know, have codes of ethics. So it's just it's 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 a very um, it's not a very novel way of dealing with things. It's just very much stuck in uh, you know standard management techniques, uh, like a like a very free market capitalist way of dealing with things. And I don't think that's sufficient. I think the Labour Party just needs more people who are able to talk ab about um, tech in, in a way that's, uh, that's cognizant of the, the new challenges that technology will pose to any sort of socialist agenda. And, you know, hopefully with, um, in the next few years, hopefully this is what is going to happen. But just right now, it's a, it's a little bit of a, um, an unfortunate situation, I would say. Why do you think um, the left is you know so so sort of unprepared to deal with this question is it is it to do just with the the, the newness of the industry is it to do with the fact that you know, it's quite rare for people uh, on the left to have have really sort of engaged with these issues on on a sort of personal basis you know um, it, it's not often you know that I meet people on the left who who have say worked for startups or or, or worked for, for any of these within these industries and certainly within Parliament uh, you know I think it's 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 re relatively rare for these people to have much intimate knowledge of, of, of these industries and and uh, you know their tendency seems to be just to be you know quite sort of starstruck by uh, by things like Facebook and so on 
I think, yeah, it comes, it really comes down to the structural problem with the way the industry works. Um, I mean, if you actually look at Liam Burns' background, he did have a stint in startups. He started a, uh, a company during the dot-com uh, bubble, which I think either failed or sold or something. It was some sort of like um, government software thing. And I think what that illustrates is the fact that a lot of people who go into this startup world, who go into the tech world, most of them don't really leave it in a way. Like they, they don't um, politically, uh, they, they don't become politically radicalized in any way. Like a lot of them just continue uh, believing the kind of free market, libertarian, entrepreneurial ideology that got them in there in the first place. So I feel like I'm, I'm actually quite rare within the industry. Uh, most of the people I know, with the exception of you know, people in the Tech Workers Coalition, they still see the world in much the same way. Like even if they do have progressive politics, they still really believe in this idea of entrepreneurship and um, you know this very, uh, I guess, liberal view of um, technology and what it should be doing and uh, how companies should should work and be regulated. So I think it's just partly a structural thing that there aren't enough people who have experience in the industry who are who ever get the opportunity to you know become radicalized, right? Because they're most of the time like they're they're getting paid lots of money to to you know continue believing whatever mm-hmm. got them to that point. Um, and then within the left as a whole, I, I also feel like there's a little bit of um, phobia towards technology, which I think is unfortunate. I think there, there are people who just think that, you know, it's it's either too difficult to engage with or it's not worth engaging with, or that um, there's no need to worry about new technologies because we can just look at what Marx wrote in 1848 and, you know, and everything is still the same as it was then, right? Uh, that That's a tendency that really, really bothers me. I think there are people, there's, you know, this uh, younger, I would say younger crop of scholars on the left who are engaging with um, tech in a, in a very novel and interesting way, which I think is great. So the, the one that, you know, I know the best is probably Nick Cernick. He's, his, his book, Platform Capitalism, is one of the first books, I think, that I read that was um, just, you know, someone on the left engaging with these topics in a way that actually was consistent with my own experience within the industry. But there, there just needs to be more about that, I, I think. Um, and I'm not really sure how that's going to happen unless it's uh, some sort of like greater, greater movement, maybe a recognition from the Labour Party that you know technology is actually an important thing we need to be dealing with. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you like the pod, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. You can also follow on Facebook and Twitter at Poll Theory Other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.